I want to tell you something, and that is operating a food company has been one of the most challenging endeavors of my life. From innovating products that we want to land at the intersection of taste and nutrition, to wrestling with supply chain issues and managing inventory, I have had more sleepless nights in the past three years than I have in the last 30, including the 12 when I was a firefighter. But no one tells you that food is hard. But I also want to say it's because of each of you that we continue to get in the trenches day after day after day. It's in our core values to keep at it, knowing that we are filling a giant void in the market with products that you can't find anywhere else. And this makes it easier for us to climb out of bed each day. I want to thank you for your patience. We are anxiously awaiting the return of our organic pancake and waffle mixes. And we're excited to announce that our Plant Strong milks will be available online later this week, followed soon thereafter by the return of our exciting new burger mixes. Our goal is to be your reliable and trustworthy partner for all things Plant Strong, allowing you to stock up on healthy meals that you can make and enjoy in minutes while still managing your busy lives. I appreciate each and every one of you and want you to know that the effort will be worth it once more brands start to care about the integrity of the nutrition that they're putting into their products. Thank you so much for your support and please stay tuned for exciting updates at planstrong.com. Let me share with you exactly what I'm having for dinner tonight. I whipped up a batch of our all new old fashioned cornbread and I'm serving it alongside our just restocked sweet and smoky chili along with a big pitcher of port swing iced tea. Now the kids are in charge of the salad tonight and Cole is massaging some avocado and lemon juice into a big bowl of kale. I'm Rip Esselstyn, and welcome to the Plant Strong Podcast. The mission at Plant Strong is to further the advancement of all things within the plant-based movement. We advocate for the scientifically proven benefits of plant-based living and envision a world that universally understands, promotes, and prescribes plants as a solution to empowering your health, enhancing your performance, restoring the environment, and becoming better guardians to the animals we share this planet with. We welcome you wherever you are on your Plant Strong journey, and I hope that you enjoy the show. Not long ago, I received an email that I had to read twice because it was so incredibly moving, impactful, powerful. Literally, it stopped me in my tracks. And... It was a letter of thanks that was written to my father, Dr. Caldwell B. Esselstyn Jr., but the email also told a story, a very cautionary story, that was so compelling, I wanted to have this conversation to share with you. And fortunately, our guest, Michael Mello, agreed to share it with all of you firsthand. And what makes this conversation so special 
is that it's actually the first time that I've sat down next to my father to interview a patient together with him for the Plan Strong podcast. Now, a little background on Mike. Mike was a person who was seemingly doing everything right. He was in his mid-50s. He was exercising six times a week. He ate a healthy pescatarian diet and even booked appointments for preventative tests just to ensure that he was, in fact, a picture of health, as his doctors had pretty much told him up to this point in time. Now, what happens next is his incredulous story that we're going to share with you right now. And I'd like for you to welcome both my father, Dr. Kawa B. Esselstyn Jr. and Mike Mello to the Plan Strong Podcast. Well, Mike, thank you so much for uh, agreeing to come on the Plan Strong Podcast. You have, to me, one of the most incredible stories that I've ever heard of, and I thank you for sharing that with me, but I think it's also a bit of a potentially a cautionary tale. Yes. And, you know, knowing what you know now, I'm sure there's some things that you probably would have done much differently. But I'd love for our listeners to just kind of uh, hear hear your story from start to finish, because it's absolutely remarkable. And, and I, let me just start with this. And then I want I want this guy on board because there's going to be a lot of terminology that I think a lot of us probably don't understand. And I'd like for him to kind of lay it out there in layman's terms. Okay. Okay. So for starters, where are you right now? Are you in are you in Cleveland? Where are you? Actually, I'm at my daughter and son-in-law's house in Lakewood. Yep. Oh, we, okay. we got here last night. Gotcha. And if you don't mind me asking, uh, how old are you? I am 57 years old. 57 years young. 57. Mm -hmm. And in what part of the country did you grow up in? I grew up in Indianapolis. I was one of uh, four sons. Uh, my mom and dad raised us in Indianapolis, and we lived there uh, really until I got my first job and and, and moved uh, to Illinois. I spent most of my career, though, in the Midwest. Right. And uh, like kind of growing up in early adulthood, did you always consider yourself to be a pretty healthy guy? Yeah. I mean, I would say we grew up eating um, like most families in the Midwest eat, though. I mean, it was, as I've heard you characterize many, many times, the sad diet, the standard American diet. Uh, we were not health conscious at all. It, it's not like we avoided fruits and vegetables. They were just not a priority come mealtime. My mom is the first to tell anybody that she's not a great cook. Um, and so you know, we sort of had the same thing kind of over and over and over again. Thursday was always pizza night. Friday, we usually went out to dinner somewhere. My father played poker every Saturday. So we were sort of on our own Saturday. Um, and Sunday was usually like a pot roast with, with potatoes. So, um, but we drank a lot of soda. Um, we ate a lot of sugar. Um, and that was just kind of, you know, the culture and the way we grew up. But were you ever overweight or did you ever have any kind of health issues? Never had any health issues. Um, you know, I was a kid that was not overweight per se, but, you know, it was in the husky genes. Um, but I was active. I played sports and, um, 
got really, really serious about physical fitness, though, about 10 years ago. Um, at that point in time, I, my, my weight had shot up. Uh, I was busy. I was working uh, a lot. Our kids were getting, um, they, they were older. So we didn't have kind of the, the, the tug and the pull of, of, you know, their schedules through, you know, elementary school, junior high, high school, et cetera. So I had a little bit more time on my hands to kind of focus on my health. Um, so I decided to get a, a personal trainer. I started working with a personal trainer, uh, lost, uh, you know, considerable amount of weight and, um, adopted a pescatarian diet. And this um, so is, came, and, and this is like, give me the timeline when you, this, this was 10 years ago. So I was at the time I was 40, 46. Okay. Now I, I have to stop you for a sec because yeah. I've, I've neglected to, let people know that your full name is Mike Mello and it's pronounced Mello. That's correct. Um, how cool was it growing up as a kid saying, you know, first day of class, you know, Mike Mello. I mean, <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, you know, all through school, I was pretty much just Mello. You know, my, my first name was dropped. <laughs> they just called really? me. Yeah. That's yeah. the best nickname ever. And would you say that you're a Mello guy? Uh, I'm not really sure I, I epitomize a mellow guy all the time. My wife would tell you that I can be pretty intense. Right. Um, but the, you know, the only thing that I couldn't do with a last name mellow is marry a girl named Marsha. That would not have worked. <laughs> right. Marsha. Mar That's good. That's good. What, what is your wife's first name? Ellen. Ellen Mello. Yeah, we've it. been married. We've been married 35 years. Wow. Okay, so let's get back. So you said about 46. Yep, 46. I got very serious about health. I adopted a, a pescatarian diet, so I eliminated all red meat, um, chicken, pork. Um, I really was watching carbs, generally speaking. Um, I really wasn't distinguishing between complex carbs and simple carbs. I just thought, you know, getting rid of carbs and uh, and you know, pastas and grains and so forth was, was a good idea. Um, and it, it ultimately had the desired effect. I, I lost um, weight. I felt good. Uh, I had the, the exercise regimen that I adopted was pretty rigorous. You know, I was, I was doing strength training four days a week. Um, and all, also during those four days, I was doing cardio. The days I wasn't doing strength training, I was doing only cardio so really, there was only one day of the week that I took off in terms of any physical activity. And that had been that's really been my um, my regimen for uh, 10 plus years. I, I, I don't miss a workout. It doesn't matter if we're on vacation uh, or traveling. Um, I am I am intent to get my workout in. Yeah. And so who was it that recommended that you go on a pescatarian diet? You avoid chicken uh, red meat, Egg, eggs, I'm assuming eggs too, or no, no, I was eating dairy. I was okay. eating, a lot, I was eating a lot of eggs. I've never, I've never been a big milk guy. So didn't really, and, and I really was never a big cheese guy, but I definitely ate eggs and I ate a lot of yogurt. Okay. Got it. So you're a pescatarian eating a lot of eggs and yogurt and you're working out six days a week. Got it. And then, and then tell us what happened where you, uh, you kind of, 
what was it that led you to found to fountain life and to kind of have all that testing done? So I was listening to a, a podcast in the gym and um, the individual being interviewed on the, the podcast was Tony Robbins. And uh, Tony Robbins had just come out with his book. Um, I think it's called Life Force. That's exactly right. I had actually, I had Tony on the podcast when his book came out and we talked all about fountain life and yep. Cleary and some of this incredible yep. technology that's coming out. So I have since listened to that podcast. Okay. It was not the podcast I was listening to when I originally um, got turned on to um, Tony's book and uh, fountain life, but um, probably about um, six, seven weeks ago, I actually listened to that podcast between you and Tony. Yeah. Yeah. And, but his, 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 what he was saying to you was essentially the same kinds of things he was saying to this particular interviewer at the time that I listened to it. And I was just fascinated, frankly, by all the advances in biotech and uh, very curious to know um, about these diagnostic tests that can find something lurking in your body before they manifest themselves as a, as a problem. And so I had a conversation with my wife. This was uh, March of last year. And I said, hey, we should we should look into this. And she was a little bit more reluctant. She was a little bit more hesitant. Um, I said, well, you know, I think we should at least consider it. And so I had to work on her for a while. She was one that, you know, if there's something wrong, I really don't want to know. And I said, well, look, I don't want to know if I have stage four cancer necessarily, if there's nothing I can do about it. But if I have stage one cancer and there's things that I can do about it, why wouldn't we, you know? And so I finally wore down. <laughs> so she can, she consented to go with me. It took us six months to get an appointment. Once we called, um, we were not able, we were not scheduled until September of last year. And as luck would have it, uh, Hurricane Ian hit. So we actually got rescheduled to November of uh, 2022. So that's when we uh, drove from Sarasota, where we live now, down to Naples. And um, we had a great experience there. The staff was wonderful. The facilities are incredible. Um, it was it was a very um, uh, extensive set of diagnostic tests that we had. We had blood biopsies done. Um, of course, you have to indicate at the beginning um, they ask you, Hey, do you want to know everything that we find? Do you want to know right. uh, about those things that we can, we can do something about, or do you want to, you know, do you want to just sort of decide later? And, and so both of us looked at each other and said, no, we want to know everything. When you decided to sign up to go to fountain life, was there a menu of different tests that you could decide that you wanted to do? Or is just when you go, you just have like from head to toe everything done to you. Yeah. Yeah. It so, wasn't, it wasn't so much like kind of a drop down menu where you chose this and that it was a, it was an extensive exhaustive set of, of tests. You know, you had a DEXA, we had a DEXA um, bone density scan. We had a, a complete C, uh, MRI from head to toe. We had the CT scans with the clearly software. Um, can you, can you, can you, can you tell people that don't know uh, what do you, what do you know about the clear, the Cleary software, like this artificial intelligence. Yeah, as, I as I understand, it's a software. It's, it's powered by AI that can um, look at the scan and 
give a, a, um, a range of, of um, calcified calcification in your arteries. It's not precise for sure. And I, I, I spoke to another cardiologist um, shortly after I did the, the test and his office actually decided not to even use clearly because it has a tendency in his opinion to sort of overstate uh, blockage. Um, but nevertheless, um, the range that was given to me. So, so what happened was, you know, we, we said, yes, we want to know everything. They said, okay, well, um, once you leave here today, you know, we'll schedule your follow-up visit. It'll be about two weeks from now. You'll meet with the medical director. He'll review all of your results. Unless of course there's a problem in which case we would call you right away. And so, you know, we left confident that we weren't going to hear anything inside of two weeks because we were both feeling very healthy. Um, neither one of us had any symptoms to indicate there was any um, illness lurking anywhere. So we're at breakfast the next morning and my phone rings and I, I pick it up and I look at it and I see caller ID and it's Fountain Life and it's the medical director from the center. So um, we had just finished breakfast. We hadn't paid our bill yet. And I looked at my wife and I said, I, I, I need to take this. So I stepped outside and he's like, Mike, this is Dr. Kingsbury from Fountain Life. Um, hey, I wanted to give you a call because I was looking at uh, your uh, test results. And this is probably not going to come as a surprise to you. But you know, we detected some some blockage, some significant blockage. Um, and I'm concerned, A, about the blockage, but I'm also very concerned about the location because it's your left anterior descending artery. Mm -hmm. And, of course, I knew that that was um, often referred to as the Widowmaker. And so I said, well, I am surprised because I don't have any symptoms. He said, you're not short of breath. I said, no. He said, you don't have any difficulty breathing. I said, no. And I said, you know, I, I work out pretty hard. I get my heart rate up to, you know, 150, 160 uh, beats a minute. Um, I said, you know, I, I, I press. And he said, well, he said, I'm not telling you to go to the emergency room, but you, you do need to get a cardiologist. And so I uh, hung up and, you know, we didn't have, we, all of our doctors were still in Indiana. So we didn't even, I didn't have a primary care doc in, in Sarasota. So um, I made a couple of phone calls, uh, did a little bit of networking, um, found a, a cardiologist, an interventionist. I think you're calling the cardiologist that does interventions, um, which is what he recommended. Um, so I, uh, I think it took about two weeks to get in to see him. And, and was this somebody, this is somebody that was in Florida? Yes. Yeah. Okay. okay. It was somebody in, uh, in Sarasota. Got it. Who had a good reputation and, I think he was he was um, well known in cardiology circles, mm. and so um, like I said, it took about two weeks to get in to see him. And my wife and I both uh, went to the appointment, and he walked in, and it was at the end of the day. It was like a, a late appointment, like four four thirty in the afternoon. So he had seen patients, you know, all day, and he walked in, and he sort of kind of um, laughed a bit. He, uh, I should back up. He did get all of my test results prior to seeing me. So he had access to those and presumably had an opportunity to look at them. But he kind of laughed a bit when he came into the exam room 
because he said, he just took one look at me. He's like, wow, you're the healthiest person I've seen all day um, without doing <laughs> without doing anything. He goes, you win. Um, then he got more serious. And we had a conversation about, you know, my calcification score, which um, was 1042. So it was 1042 was my calcification. My, um, calcif- and that was... And that was a calcific- calcification score that you got when you were at Fountain Life? That's right. Yeah, okay. That's okay. correct. And so he said, well, um, I, th- I think the first thing we need to do is a stress test. And, and I had had stress tests um, every year, really, since I was like 40. Um, before I retired, I worked as, as, a, as an executive in a company, and one of our benefits was an executive physical program. So, and I took advantage of that every year. And it was, a, it was an exhaustive physical. It wasn't like Fountain Life, but it was, you know, I was there half a day. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the tests they did was a stress test. And it was, um, it was not a nuclear stress test. It was a... Um, they basically look at your um, your VO2 max. And so they clip your nose shut and they're taking your blood pressure and you've got this mask on. And so um, one more reason why I was very surprised when the doctor called me and told me that I had a blockage because my EKGs every year were normal. As a matter of fact, my um, last stress test um, that was monitored by EKG in October of 2021, my doctor said, for a 55-year-old man, your stress test is uh, perfect. He goes, I'm going to show my nurse, my new nurse who's starting next week, what a perfect stress test looks like for, or I'm sorry, a perfect EKG looks like for a 55-year-old male. So the stress test that um, the doctor, the cardiologist ordered was a nuclear stress test, which again, I had not been subjected to before. Um, so I went, um, they interjected this um, or injected this radioactive isotope and when I was at rest, they sort of watched it travel, took some pictures. I came back three days later. They put me on a treadmill, um, blood pressure cuff, uh, hooked me up to EKG. All of that was normal. Um, there were no indications on my EKG that there were any issues. Got off the treadmill. They injected the radioactive isotope again. I laid back down on the table. They took pictures. Of course, you know, they don't tell you anything in the moment. I got a call back from my doctor, said, hey, come back and see us. We went in to see him and, and he said, well, the, the stress test confirmed that you have blockage um, and, um, you know, but you're asymptomatic. Um, we think one of two options is reasonable for you. You can wait until you become symptomatic and then we, we'll, we would do um, a, uh, um, a, a heart cat. We'd take you into the lab and do an, an angiogram or we can do that now. And so, um, you know, I wish I could go back in time to that moment because I would have taken a beat and I would have done some research and I really was not in a position to advocate for myself because frankly, I was uneducated. Um, I just, I just didn't know. Uh, all I heard was blockage in my left anterior descending artery. I knew I worked out hard and I didn't want the first symptom to be a heart attack that I may or may not survive. Do you feel like you were getting kind of a, a hardcore press to go an option two as opposed to just kind of hang, hang, hang tight? 
Uh, I wouldn't say it was a hard. No, I wouldn't say that. They, they, I think they honestly believe that one of the either of those options was was reasonable. It was really not a a full court press to uh, opt for the uh, the angiogram. I'd love for my father just to weigh in here for a second. A couple things before before you kind of continue. The first is, okay. what are you, what are your thoughts on a calcification score of like a thousand forty two? Does that mean anything to you? Well, it's an indication that the patient does have coronary artery disease. And we've seen any number of patients in our uh, uh, seminars that have calcification scores as high as 3,000. Right. And then, and then the other thing that you said is, so they determined that the blockage, was it in your uh, left anterior descending artery, was 80%? Mike, is that correct? So again, there was a range. They gave me a range, and they said the gold standard to know exactly how much is to uh, do a heart cath. Okay, okay, and but they and described it as significant blockage. Okay, and then you had that heart cath done, right? I did. And then what did that what did that uh, yield? So I I went in for the um, the heart catheterization on January tenth, and. I was I was in the heart the, the lab for two and a half hours, but there was no intervention. Uh, it took them that long to get all the pictures that they wanted. They they went through my wrist first, um, and then they couldn't get all the pictures. They, they said something about my anatomy made it very difficult. So then they ended up having to go through my groin. Um, by that time, after two and a half hours, I was getting very very uncomfortable because you know I was awake. Wow. Um, I was in a quote relaxed state. Um, but you know, my arms started twitching and I was just, the doctor knew that I had had enough. And, uh, and I think it's uh, Dr. Esselstyn would know better for sure, but I think it's relatively unusual to be in a, the lab for two and a half hours and there'd be no intervention. It was just all pictures. Correct. So I came back out and I got out and he said, you've had enough. I'll talk to you in a little bit. So I went into the the recovery room or whatever you call it, and he came back in. He said, "Yes, the the um, angiogram confirmed that you do have significant blockage, and we do recommend stents." He said, "But there's a chance I'm going to consult with another doctor. There's a chance that um, we may do bypass surgery." Mm. And I mean, my my jaw just dropped. I mean, I I couldn't believe what I was hearing. Frankly, stents one thing, but bypass surgery was something that just, you know, it, it really just kind of took my legs out from underneath me. Um, so I, you know, just sort of nodded and, um, I said, okay, so I'll hear from you guys soon. And he said, yes. So the, um, they got back with me and they said, look, um, we think, uh, bypass surgery is overkill. We think that the, the, the best, uh, an effective intervention is to uh, put two heart stents in, one into your left anterior descending, and then the other one was in my, I think it was my left circumflex artery. And so I went in three weeks later. Can I, I stop you? I want to stop yeah. you for a sec before you before you talk about the procedure you had. And let me ask you this. So he's got significant blockage in his LAD and another artery or two. Is it uncommon for somebody to have blockages like that and be completely asymptomatic no it certainly can can happen absolutely right and um 
because I think I read in your in your letter, Mike, that did you have eighty percent blockage? Is that yeah. a number that I'm remembering correctly? Yes. Yeah. So I mean, have you have you have you ever counseled patients that have ninety or hundred percent blockage? Oh yeah. And then oh yeah. But but they're asymptomatic. Uh, well, yes. And, uh, and how uh, would you explain that? Is it because they build the corollary? The, I mean, collateral collateral uh, arteries mm-hmm. around it, or just simply by the anatomy that, that they have, they are still getting enough. Uh, oxygenated blood, so they're not getting uh, symptoms. But uh, I think I can recall when we started this uh, years ago, one of the first uh, patients I had had an 80% blockage right at the junction of the left anterior descending and the circumflex, right where I think Mike's was. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was all set to have uh, a uh, bypass operation at the Cleveland Clinic, our institution, but he somehow found about the fact that that we existed <laughs> and he just wanted to hear what we had to say and uh, we went through the whole nine yards uh, and he was having symptoms if he walked to the mailbox so since his surgery was not scheduled for another six weeks ahead he aggressively tried the program and suddenly he found out that he could walk to the mailbox without without any symptoms and he thought to himself hmm, this seems like a little Kinder way to treat this disease. Maybe, maybe I'll stick with this with him for a while. And he gradually increased, increased, increased his uh, efforts. He was a, he was a a passionate triathlete. And after he saw another cardiologist who gave him the green light to go back, after about uh, eight months, he went back to his triathlons. And this this was now he. I saw him actually uh, fourteen years ago. We called him. Because uh, we were going by his uh, uh, southern New York State Route 86, we were going by near his house. We decided to call him, and he's still doing triathlons. Wow! And he never had any no, any, no. any procedure oh, no. done. No, and the interesting yeah. thing was, he when he changed cardiologist two years after the earlier one, the same blockage was there, but all discomfort was gone. Mm. Yeah, and he was really and, and the blockage because it was calcified. And as you said, when you have the calcification, that's like a tattoo that... Yeah, but what what happens when you're eating this way, all the other arteries that are so-called normal are not really uh, dilated to their fullest extent, which is why so often these patients, if they have symptoms, within four, six, eight, or 10 days, they begin to improve. So And so he got out to the mailbox and was doing much better without any kind of uh, oh, yeah. symptoms within a couple of days. And well, you said six weeks, right? Yeah. Okay, so Mr. Mello, yes, let's come. Let's come back to you. So you are now staring at this inter- intervention to get the two stents done, right? Correct. Okay, take it away. So um, I guess the headline is: I went into the cath lab at two p.m. I did not leave the cath lab until after eleven p.m. and landed in ICU. Basically, anything seemingly that could go wrong went wrong. Um, uh, so they got me in and, uh, they got the, again, I'm in a relaxed state, right? So I'm awake. They got the first stent in, but when they tried to put the second stent in and the le- the first stent went in, I should say into the, the left circumflex, the second, wait, stent are, you, are, are you sedated for this? Are you, I'm, in a, I'm, in, I'm sedated, but I'm awake. I'm in, you like, are. they okay. call a relaxed state. Um, 
because they sometimes they they ask you to uh, to do things like cough and you know they want you yeah. to be able to follow instructions and so um, when they tried to put the second stent in and that was into my uh, left anterior descending uh, the doctor said and I'll never forget it, he said y- your body did not like that <laughs> that's the that's the only um, answer to the question uh, that I've ever got, like what happened and why did this happen? Your body didn't like it. What happened was, um, and Dr. Esselstyn can keep me honest here in terms of the sequence of things. But as I understand, the first thing that happened is I experienced ventric- ventricular tachycardia. And so, can we, can we, can we, can we stop? And so people understand what every term is. So what yes. exactly is that? As a sort of an uncontrolled rapid heartbeat for the left ventricle. Okay. Okay. Yes. And it was apparently very, very rapid. Um, that led to um, ventricular, ventricular fibrillation. Which, so is, it, which is, well, that's, that's his, uh, that is sort of the, the, the natural stepchild of ventricular tachycardia. That is very prone to turn into ventricular uh, fibrillation. Yeah, so I went into VFib. Um, so my heart basically wasn't pumping blood right. to just, any organ. It just shakes, was shaking kind of uncontrollably. Yeah. Um, and so I went into cardiogenic shock, um, which, you know, I, so, I, I kind of sort of understand. I know what I was experiencing. I was sweating profusely. Um, my heart, my heart rate was still extremely elevated. Um, and as I understand it, cardiogenic shock is something that uh, is very, very serious. Well, it's your heart isn't your heart is not pumping. Your heart is wiggling, but it's not pumping. And so then I then I went into cardiac arrest. So then my and heart so- stopped. So were you, are you, are you awake or are you unconscious now? So I was awake up until cardiac arrest because then my heart stopped and I stopped breathing. And they, um, of course, you know, when they're prepping you for the procedure, you know, they put the, 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 um, electrodes, electrodes on your, on your chest in the event they have to, you know, shock your heart, um, and so they ended up having to shock my heart, but it it didn't go back into rhythm. And uh, so again, I'm without a pulse. I'm I'm not breathing. Somebody's and, pumping your chest. Yeah. Well, I, I anybody yeah, pumping it? Not that I recall, because I was, you know, I was I was unconscious. What I came to find, what I came to learn the next day is that the doctor made, he probably had a minute and a half to two minutes to make a decision as to what to do or else I wouldn't be here. And so he ended up um, delivering a heart pump through right. a second catheter. So they they cut my left femoral artery and inserted a, um, a second catheter that was used to deliver a, um, a heart pump to my heart to get it and which basically took over for my heart and got my heart beating again. Um, yeah. And I was, that heart pump was used for uh, essentially the rest of the, the procedure. Um, it was not withdrawn in, in for, for several hours. 
Yeah, and you said that you said in your email to me that was called an impella. It's an impella. Pump. That was an impella heart pump. Yes. Yeah. And then also, you know, when all this is going on, do you know the time from when you your heart went into ventricular tachycardia to when he had to put in the in, huh. in the heart pump? Have any any idea? I, I don't. No. I don't. You know what? We were expecting this procedure to last you know, an hour total, um, from the time I got in to the time I got out. Um, you know, that was doctors told me that they told my wife that who was in the waiting room. So, you know, um, they got the first dent in presumably very quickly. Uh, The reason that I was in there for nine hours is because of everything that, that happened and then recovering from, uh, you know, all of the medical problems I was experiencing. And you also mentioned that in addition to, you know, going into cardiac arrest, you also had flash pulmonary edema, which is what? My lungs started to fill with fluid. And that's part of your congestive heart failure. Yeah. And then also you said that your kidneys took a massive beating as well, yes. right? Yes. And why, why is that? From all the diet, all the contrast and the uh, low blood pressure. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm going to have a question. Did, uh, did they end up... Uh, pleased with the stent that went into the left anterior descending yes they yes they they at the end of the procedure you know they said look you had a rough go of it (laughs) but you know there shouldn't be any complications there was no damage to your heart um we don't really know why what happened to you happened um it's the the nurse said you know it's one in a million um the um, the physician assistant said, you know, I've been doing cardiology for 25 years. This is only the second time this, this has ever happened. And the other patient was, you know, considerably older and in poor health. Mm. Um, so yeah, now, now, so now once, once the heart pump was delivered and took over from my heart, now I'm awake again. Um, I'm conscious and I know that things are not going well because you hear, I heard, you know, get me this stat. This isn't working. Bring so-and-so in here. There were many, uh, a lot of people coming and going um, in the in the lab. Um, they were asking me questions. I, I came to find out later that was in, in order to confirm brain function. Because uh, obviously, when I was, uh, after suffering cardiac arrest, all of my organs were deprived of oxygen and blood, um, including my brain. So, yeah. Do you know how long? Was it over two minutes? Under two? It was probably right around two minutes. The, the length of time it took him to cut my left femoral artery, put the catheter in, and deliver the impella heart pump. Um, wow. That was a pretty um, pretty incredible move that he made there at the time. Yes. Yeah. I, I, I'm uh, Obviously, I'm very grateful for uh, his quick decision-making. But, you know, there, I'm, I'm vomiting. Um, I have... I, it's, it's weird. I had the, um, um, the, the wherewithal to, to do things during that procedure. Again, once, once I came back, I, you know, I knew that if I vomited while laying down, um, that I could aspirate. So, you know, I was picking my head up and turning it, uh, to puke. Um, I was coughing constantly just because of, I guess all of the meds, the fluid on my lungs. Um, I was they had to cut my gown off me uh, because uh, my low blood pressure and how much I was sweating. 
And, you know, I, I also was very concerned about my wife in the waiting room. Cause again, I knew things were not going well. I knew I was going to die in that lab. I just, I knew it. And I kept sending um, one of the technicians out. I said, you need to give my wife an update. Um, Cause again, she was expecting an hour. Mike, um, yeah. did you, uh, was there a, uh, in the conversation you had before the procedure, was there a discussion of, of complications that can occur with stenting? No, no. And well, well there are, there are some well-known figures. 1%, 1% of people can die and uh, 4% can have a heart attack. The, uh, for example, if, if you have an, a country that does 1.2 million uh, stents uh, per year, that means that 12,000 people will die. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think that's information that patients should have. 4% of the, of the 1.2 million will have a heart attack. So that's what, four times 12, that's another 48,000. And if you take that over a, a decade, then it's 10 times, it's 10 times 12,000. That's 120,000 people will die uh, getting a stent. That's acceptable. That's the data that's known. I think that has to be shared. Well, also, what percent of stents fail within a year and a half, two years? Well, first of all, I think that they were, it sounds like they were very astute and very brilliant with what they did to make a wonderful resolution of the complications that you had. And I think they could be congratulated for that. But the really the one of the basic problems is when I do in my practice, my most frequent phone call that I get, Dr. Esselstyn, I've been told I have to have bypass or stents. I don't want to have it. What can I do? And uh, the interesting thing is when these are offered electively, uh, these patients really, if they're carefully studied, there's no reason for them to have to have a uh, procedure which has the potential of this kind of complication, especially if they have no symptoms. We have a saying in medicine, it is difficult to make the asymptomatic patient feel better. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, um, here, here. There we go. Um, so, so, Mike, let's get back. So you're on the table. Yes. Um, and, you know, they've, in, they've inserted the, the heart pump. And then you had complications when they tried to basically, um, basically um, put in an incision, right? So what happened was um, they, got, they got the second stent in. My heart got back into rhythm. They were pleased with the placement of the second stent. And so they withdrew the catheter that, that, you know, carried the heart pump to my heart. They kept me alive during the the procedure. When they took the catheter out, um, they could not suture the incision and they couldn't get it to stop um, bleeding any other way than manual compression. So they had to um, apply manual compression for two and a half hours and you're and you're awake for that. I'm, I'm awake for that, and uh, you know that was the most. That was not the 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 closest I came to not being here, <laughs> um, but that was the most painful. I mean, the other stuff that was happening to me clearly some of some. I mean, it was it was all uncomfortable, but in terms of like sheer pain, having a grown man on top of me, you know, with all of his weight 
pressing yeah. down on the incision. And of course they had to take turns because, you know, not That's one person can, can apply compression for two and a half hours like that. Wow. So they were tag teaming it, but they were literally on top of me. Um, and I was, I remember wailing and in pain. I mean, it, it hurt. <laughs> it hurt a lot. Um, they finally got it to clot. And then um, that was when, you know, he told me that um, I was, I was going to obviously be staying overnight. <laughs> before, you, uh, before you had the uh, procedure, when you were into the discussion and they discussed the options of either waiting for a number of months till you became symptomatic, Mm-hmm. Uh, was there ever any discussion about while you were waiting these six months, you could treat the causation of the disease with plant-based nutrition? None, not one single uh, word about that. Well, yes, um, but this, that information has been actually forthcoming now for well over uh, thirty years. Yeah. yeah, but you're you're not surprised that he didn't get that information, correct? I mean, that seems to be kind of Unfortunately, the status quo these days. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's unfortunate. Yeah, no, I and and so you know, my wife and I have had this discussion a number of times. Like, knowing what I know now, would I have made the same decision when that doctor posed those two options to me? Wait until you're symptomatic, or um, mm-hmm. or an angiogram. I I would have um, I would have definitely waited, and I would have. Um, educated myself on the um, the role that a whole food plant-based diet can play and not only stemming coronary artery disease, but reversing it. Now, I, I want to alert you to a couple of things. One, uh, what have they told you about the status of the stents going forward? Um, they haven't really, they haven't really said anything other than when I've asked questions like, so, um, you're, you 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 are happy with the placement of the stents. You're happy with you know how they're how they were performing, I guess. Um, and the answer to those questions has always been yes. And again, no damage to your heart. You should be just fine. There's no reason why you shouldn't continue to live a long, healthy life. Yeah, but there are there's more data. One uh, percent of stents will fail in a year. Forty mm-hmm. percent of stents within 20 years, uh, encounter problems. Yeah. So just that's all right. They're going to keep an eye on this. And, uh, well, but for, I'll tell you if it's a situation that, that I not infrequently encounter is once we've had a patient has come to us after they've had the stent, they say they've had one stent in the left anterior descending and they're fine for two years or three years. And then they begin to get chest pain again and they, Sure enough, they want to say, well, that plant-based diet isn't working. Well, the interesting thing is that when you get a repeat angiogram, you know if the patient has been following it correctly, this can't be the case. But what happens is the stent has failed. The stent has gone down and it's given the mangina. And how do we know this? You look at the other blockages at the time of the original procedure Mm. that were not significant enough to warrant having a stent. and they. Now that it's been three years of eating this way, they will have gotten shrink. They have they will have shrunken. They've reversed, while at the same time this the stent, being a foreign body, mm-hmm. and initiating a what we call neo intimal hyperplasia, has uh, 
begun to shut down. So because I have the stent in my LAD um, down the road, if that stent, if I should encounter problems with the stent and they suggest to me that they need to go back in, um, there is no other option other than restenting. I mean, is the way that I'm eating now um, will not protect the stent. Will not protect the stent. That was it, because it, the stent is a the the, uh, the coronary artery was not designed to live side by side with a bare metal stent. Hmm. And uh, and some of these, well, most by the end of twenty years have had a reaction. However, this, but the majority of these patients are absolutely. You're going to do fine. You're going to have somebody keep an eye on this. This isn't usually ever going to slow close suddenly. As it closes slowly, you might begin to get some symptoms. That's all. Mm-hmm. And then when that happens, they sometimes can go in and actually, believe it or not, put another stent inside that wow. to correct the problem. So can, can we, Mike, thanks for your patience with this conversation on stents. Sure. And I hope it's not making you, you know, too uncomfortable, you know, but, but the reality is, right, people are getting stents every day right. to people. Oh, yeah. But wasn't there... Wasn't there some pretty powerful research that came out of the Lancet, I want to say five years ago, where they took a group of people and they gave them stents. Other ones, they didn't, but they didn't know what group they were in. Right. And it basically showed that there was almost no difference. That's the, or, the Orbita trial. Yeah. Right. And, and, what, and so what, what, what's your takeaway from that trial? Well, that trial clearly indicated that in, in those particular patients, there was no benefit. To stents. And so, in your opinion, when is there a benefit to get stents? Oh, when there's no question, when somebody's in the middle of a heart attack, a stent can be absolutely life saving. Mm-hmm. No question. Mm-hmm. No question. So, uh, but other. But, but I, I think that uh, Mike has got either a cardiologist in Indiana or one in Florida. Yeah. Who's going to be able to, you know, the, the, and his symptoms and so forth will be the guide as to how this is yeah. all proceeding. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mike, let me ask you this. How has this whole experience that you had, how did this change, change your life? Uh, wow. I, I, um, I think about that, um, a lot, you know, I, I feel blessed and fortunate to be here. Um, you know, the first thing that I wanted to do after, um, you know, recovering in the in ICU was speak to each of my children. Um, Cause again, in the moment, I, I just knew in that lab that I was, I was a goner. Uh, I just had this sense with, again, being conscious and everything going on and hearing all the chaos that, that, you know, it wasn't going to end well. So uh, clearly it's, it's made me um, uh, more aware of how fragile life is for sure. Um, I, and it makes me more um, conscientious about how I spend time and who I spend time with. Um, And it's, um, it's awakened me, frankly, to the power of, of nutrition and, and the, 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 the medicine, frankly, of, of nutrition and eating right. Um, I'm frankly amazed at the results that I've already seen um, in a few months of being on the diet. Yeah. So what what are what have been some of the results that you've seen in three months, three plus months? 
Well, I can I can compare where I was in November when I left Fountain Life um, with the diagnosis. My cholesterol, uh, total cholesterol then was 234. I just had it tested a, a month ago and it's 108. Is that Are those uh, apples to apples as far as statins or no statins? And so, so in, uh, I was, when I went to Fountain Life, I was on a statin. I was on no meds. I wasn't taking any medication for anything. Um, so I am on a statin. I'm on a, uh, 20 milligrams of rosuvastatin. Um, so the, the November reading was um, before a statin. Got it. Um, Got it. And that was, uh, again, um, 233. Um, it's now 108. And my LDL back in November was 135 and is now 31. Um, so is there a role the statin is playing? Um, I would say yes. However, um, it my LDL has dropped 20 points just since I've been on the diet. So it'll be amazing. It'll be, I'm very curious to have a conversation with my doctor. And that conversation is coming where I ask him, to take me off the statin because, you know, with an LDL now of 31, even if the statin is doing something, um, the way that I'm eating and I'm, I am not deviated from the diet one bit. I traveled, I traveled with food. Um, I ate a cold baked potato yesterday on the drive from Indiana to Lakewood. But we didn't really want to stop it. It's I, I, I prep meals now. You know, I, I, I make sure that I'm not caught in a situation where I don't have something on the ready. Mike, so, did we have a chance to, did we speak long enough that I tried to enlighten you about the importance of the endothelial cell? Oh, yes. And, and nitric oh, yeah. oxide. Yeah. And while I, while I, before I forget it, while, uh, while hindsight here in this uh, very uh, thought provoking situation that you've presented us, well, hindsight is twenty twenty. I do think it's important that I congratulate those guys that uh, even though they got into an absolutely horrific complication, that they had the will, the grit, and the determination to, and the what night, and the uh, and the know how to uh, get you out of that rat, uh, that situation. But from here on, I really hope that you'll uh, do as you're doing, <laughs> take the whole plant based nutrition seriously because it. And also, uh, if there's ways, you know, we have, we have to question the fact that the American Heart Association was formed in 1924. Even back then, we knew that there were multiple cultures on the planet Earth where cardiovascular disease was virtually non-existent. And since then, there have been a number of what I call skillful colleagues and friends who have taken the route that I have to try to do research uh, on the benefits of plant-based nutrition. And it's all out there and it's published in the scientific literature. And I'm, uh, I'm very disappointed that physicians like the ones that treated you never even brought that up to you. I mean, it's really almost unforgivable not to give the patient the opportunity to absolutely vanquish their disease without any complications and without any significant expense. The only time it came up was after when they um, suggested that cardiac rehab might be a good option for me. And so I asked, well, what's cardiac rehab? And they described the program. One part of the program is um, following the Dean Ornish uh, diet. Um, and um, 
which, as you both um, well know, is essentially um, the exact diet that Dr. Esselstyn has been recommending for years. So, um, but when they when they brought it up, um, they brought it up with almost a, a derisive tone, like you know, uh, people don't eat like that. You can't eat like that for you know for a long time. It's just you know those are always the people in a in a, a big you know hotel like banquet room or conference room when we're presenting you know to a large group and they're always shivering in the back because they're so cold because apparently they're not they're not getting enough nutrients or enough fat or I don't know. I mean, it was, it was definitely not, Hey, you should really consider doing this. It was like, well, it's part of the cardiac rehab program. So you might want to do it. Right. Um, what did, did so, um, who, who referred you then to, to this guy here and yeah. you went to his seminar, I think it was March 10th. Yeah. So what happened was, um, at, you know, given the experience that I had, I had just so many questions and, um, I, um, had the occasion of talking to my wife's brother who, um, knew of an individual, a friend of his back from high school, actually, that, um, ended up having bypass surgery in his forties. And he knew of Dr. Esselstyn and had, uh, had, uh, a consult with him and, uh, undoubtedly been to one of his, webinar. So it was really through a, 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 my brother-in-law's friend. And interestingly, I said, well, how do I contact this Dr. Esselstyn? And so I got a, the email and I, uh, I emailed and Jackie answered and said, you know, we've got a program coming up. I had my consult, Dr. Esselstyn, and I talked for probably an hour. And then some days later, I was in the, the webinar on, on the 10th. And, um, and so... When- did everything you hear just kind of make sense? Had you read the book yet? Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. And I read Dean's book too. I read Dean Ornish's book as well. Um, it, 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 yeah, it clicked. It, it, you know, when Dr. Esselton describes the, the endothelium and, you know, what happens to the endothelium over time and how to restore the endothelium and how it, you know, it's a natural dilator of, of, of blood vessels um, and you know, you eat these, uh, all these leafy greens that ultimately, uh, build the endothelium. I mean, um, it, it, it made perfect sense. Uh, and so I have been proselytizing to anybody and everybody who will <laughs> listen to me, <laughs> um, about, cause they're, you know, they're like, oh my gosh, you're feeling well, you look great. Like, but there's always a little bit of, so now that your labs are so good, are you going to still be on that diet? And I said, well, of course, of course I am. That's the reason the labs are so good. That's the reason that I'm feeling so good and, and, um, and feeling so healthy. And, and I've heard you um, rip on a number of podcasts, talk to individuals following the diet. And they all say, you know, they all sort of face um, a lot of the same skepticism about eating, you know, twigs and grass and this and that. And, and I will echo everything that they've said on your webcast. This food is exceptionally flavorful. It is so good. I mean, it's, it, I haven't gotten sick of, of anything. And I, I eat, uh, I have, um, most of our meals, I use recipes from, um, Anne or Jane, uh, from the, the cookbook. I've also bought a couple of cookbooks ripped from various authors that you've had on your, your podcasts. And 
you know, I was never a chef. I was, I was never in the kitchen. Um, and now, you know, I prepare, I prep every meal for myself, my wife, um, and any family members who are home. So you've kicked your wife out of the role of basically being the head chef in the house. Yeah. Yeah. And she's extremely supportive. We're doing it together. I mean, she'll, she, you know, she has her occasional, um, you know, uh, treat, um, usually something sweet, but, um, yeah, we, you know, when you live together, you know, you prepare meals and you eat essentially the same and she's been extremely supportive and has really enjoyed the food as well. Are you in uh, Ohio right now? Right now I'm in Lakewood. Yes. Very good. <laughs> yeah. Hey, hey, um, how shaken to the core was your wife waiting in the waiting room? Cause you said it was going to be about an hour. Okay. It's nine hours. Is she just, is she getting reports of what's going on? Well, I'm sending the technicians out, but they're not really telling her exactly what's going on. They're, they're telling her that I'm, that I'm having a tough go of it. And that, um, but I'm, I'm, I'm fighting. I'm, I'm, things are going okay. But, and I understand that they're not going to say, Oh geez, it's, it's really nip and tuck in there. I'm not sure he's going to make it. Um, so they were telling her, you know, a little bit, but she, she, she's a smart woman. She knew. And, um, the, the second to the last report, the, the doctor's head nurse came out and she took a look at him and, you know, he was obviously stressed. And she said, um, before you say anything, you need to sit down because I have to sit down. Um, and then she talked to the doctor at, at the end of it. And the doctor's like, he's like, Ellen, he said, uh, there's not a lot of uh, people that could have fought through what he fought through. He said, yes, we did what we had to do, but your husband is incredibly strong. Mm. Um, he, you know, physically he was very strong, but, you know, for him to be awake during, you know, the majority of that procedure, he said, um, you know, he, he did more than his share to, to get him through. Um, and she's like, well, that doesn't surprise me at all because he's a very willful man and, <laughs> and he does not like to know, he does not like to miss anything. So the fact that he remained conscious is a testament to his strong uh, desire to be in the know. <laughs> uh, tell me about Mike, uh, how is your uh, renal, uh, your kidney function? All good. They they return to normal, um, uh, whatever level of performance. The creatinine, the creatinine. Yeah. Yes, it's all. It was all good. Weeks later, and really the only restrictions that I had post procedure were uh, I developed um, a, a pseudo aneurysm because of the um, the uh, where they had to go in through my left femoral artery. I developed a, a blood clot there that um, was uh, some leakage in one of my blood vessels that they thought was small enough that it would clot on its own. And it did. It just took a couple of weeks. So I wasn't able to go to the gym or anything like that for a couple of weeks. But that had nothing to do with my heart. It had everything to do with that healing. Hey, Mike, can you share with our audience what have you eaten so far today? Because it's probably um, about five, six o'clock your time right now. Yeah. Um, so I told you that we traveled with food. So um, this morning I got up and I made um, the same breakfast I have almost every morning. It was uh, oatmeal and with uh, fruit. And I was using fresh fruit. Now I think it's actually even yeah. tastier to 
microwave frozen fruit berries and put it on. I started with a banana. I had the oatmeal um, and with the fruit and also your granola rip, the berry flavored granola on top of the oatmeal. I had that every morning. And then um, that got, I mean, I was, I was feeling, you know, um, satiated all the way until about two o'clock. And that was after my wife and I walked about five miles and I did a strength circuit in, in the backyard here at my daughter's house, about two o'clock I came in and, um, I warmed up one of those baked potatoes that I brought and put some salsa on it. And, uh, that was, that was lunch. Her, her, her kitchen is not, and her cupboards are not stocked with whole food plant-based, um, options currently, but we're going to go shopping tomorrow because we're here for, we're here until next Thursday. Nice. What are you, what are your plans for dinner tonight? I'm probably going to make um, one of the Esselstyn's favorites, as I understand, just black beans and brown rice and with 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 lots of veggies. Hey. So I'll nice up some some peppers and um, some jicama and I'll have some, you know, some spinach, some um, uh, probably some um, jalapenos. Oh, yeah, that sounds great. How how absolutely proud are you of what mike has done in the last three months well i think it shows that listen if anybody like uh, had gone through what mike has gone through who has a brain in their head (laughs) (laughs) doesn't ever want to do this uh, again or have it experienced but the the exciting thing that, that to know is that it is so ridiculously simple safe and inexpensive to absolutely annihilate the leading killer of women and men in Western civilization, which is cardiac disease. And, and we have got to somehow emerge from the dark ages of treating it with drugs, stents, and bypasses, which have absolutely not one single solitary thing whatsoever to do with the causation of the illness. And those, pa- and those cardiologists and cardiovascular people really have got to tumble to the idea that what we're doing is absolutely fallaciously wrong. Mm-hmm. And we ought to, ought, to, ought to offer every patient the opportunity of a treatment that is going to absolutely kill this disease. You know, I was just on a, on a panel, Mike, about a week ago in, uh, in New York City with Dr. Neil Barnard, uh, Dr. Rob Osfeld, um, with mm-hmm. Montefiore Hospital, he's a cardiologist there. Mm-hmm. Dr. Michelle McMacken, and you know, the mayor there now is Eric Adams. Eric Adams, yeah, fervent, fervent yeah. advocate of whole food, plant based nutrition. He actually came to see came to see my father, and you know, basically credits him with the information that helped him to reverse his type two diabetes. But in all the New York City hospitals now, the first default meal that you get after a procedure is whole food plant-based mm-hmm. that's pretty darn cool and if you want to have something that's animal-based or something like that it's the third the mm-hmm. third option the second is again plant-based so the first is whole food plant-based the second is whole food plant-based and then if you're like i, I can't do that then the third down the down the rung of the ladders is, is some sort of an you know, animal-based do you know what was on the menu for me in ICU? For uh, uh, a cheeseburger with bacon. I have no idea. So again, this was, I was a pescatarian at the time. So I had a, 
I, I had a ready-made excuse to turn away the tray, um, but it was beef Manhattan. So I'm a, a heart patient. Okay. I just experienced what I described to you guys. I'm in ICU and they serve me beef Manhattan. You know what that is? A slice of white bread with some sort of beef and all this gravy on top. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. That's what they're serving a heart patient in ICU. Yeah. Yeah. Incredible. Well, um, Mike, if I'm not mistaken, I'm going to see you in a couple months in Sedona, Arizona, you and yeah, your wife, right? My wife and I are both going to be there. We're very much looking forward to it. Uh, so am I. So am I. It's going to be incredible. You have to tell the story. Oh, well, yes, yes, I'm sure. A lot of people will have probably listened to the podcast, but yes, you'll, if you're game for it, I'd love for you to share your story there as well. Um, Mike, this has been absolutely incredible. I can't tell you how much I appreciate you sharing your story, this, you know, this very cautionary tale with us being so, um, so open with, with everything that you went through and, um, how it's changed your life. Cause I think there's a lot of people out there listening that will, uh, have a lot of great takeaways from this conversation that we've had. It's been my honor and privilege. I thank you both for all the work that you're doing. Yeah. Thank you. Any, any, any closing words from you, Essie? Uh, just, <laughs> Absolutely. Congratulations to uh, your willingness uh, to really try to educate other people so they can avoid the path that you had to follow. Yeah. And and that's to your earlier question, Rip, about how it's changed me. That's I really would like to, to figure out a way that I can um, help affect the change and, and, and really spread the word um, to get people to embrace a healthier way of living that will spare them from, you know, not only from the kind of thing that happened to me, which, you know, let's chalk that up to a fluke, but there are so many people that are living in such unhealthy ways by what they're eating. And um, it's just a ticking time bomb for many. And so to the extent that I could get a platform and and tell a story and and help convert some folks to a whole food plant-based diet and embrace their health in the process, I'd love to do that. Remember, it is difficult to make the asymptomatic patient feel <laughs> feel better. We shall, we shall. Hey, Mike, this has been terrific, and enjoy your time in Lakewood with your daughter. And uh, I'll see you in a couple months, my plan strong brother. Give me a little plan strong bump, up a little higher, up a little higher. There you go, boom. Hey, and thank you to this guy for joining in. All right. Mike, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks so much to Mike for recounting that incredible day. And thanks to my father for providing some incredibly useful color commentary, guidance, and wisdom. I know that it was Mike who wrote a thank you letter to us, but I really I want to thank Mike for embracing this plant strong lifestyle and sharing his story the way he did with us today. The biggest endorsement of this plant strong lifestyle is putting it into action and watching it work. And Mike has done exactly that. And if any of you are figuring out how to put this lifestyle into action, I would encourage you to join us at our Sedona immersion in October, and you can not only meet 
myself and Dr. Clapper and Doug Lyle and Adam Sud, my sister Jane, and a slew of other people, but you can also meet Mike Mello and his incredible wife. So to all of you, thanks so much for listening and always, always keep it plant strong. Thank you for listening to the Plant Strong Podcast. You can support the show by taking a quick minute to follow us wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Leaving us a positive review and sharing the show with your network is another great way to help us reach as many people as possible with the exciting news about plants. Thank you in advance for your support. It means everything. The Plant Strong Podcast team includes Carrie Barrett, Lori Kordowich, Amy Mackey, Patrick Gavin, and Wade Clark. This season is dedicated to all of those courageous truth seekers who weren't afraid to look through the lens with clear vision and hold firm to a higher truth. Most notably, my parents, Dr. Caldwell B. Esselstyn Jr. and Anne Kryle Esselstyn. Thanks for listening.